the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thanksgiving Eve edition of the Dan Prop Show. Thank you for joining us. I hope uh, everyone has a happy and healthy Thanksgiving dinner with uh, six or fewer or ten or fewer of your family and friends, depending on where you live and how uh, much uh, of a lives of culture under which you live. You know, if you've got uh, governors peeking over your windowsills in places like New York and Maryland, Oregon. I know Oregon... Uh, no friends over for turkey, but I, I think you can still have friends over for heroin. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But uh, we begin on this installment of the program with uh, the rollout of the uh, leading from behind gang. Yeah, Joe Biden has got the leading from behind band back together, and he rolled out uh, his national security team or some of the important component parts of it yesterday, including Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is... The U.S. is going to be the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in a Biden administration, if there is to be one. And uh, this is how she uh, introduced or reintroduced herself, I suppose, to the world, to the Foreign Service community. She's got a message for everyone. I want to say to you, America is back. Multilateralism is back. Diplomacy is back. Did it leave? Uh, Mike Pompeo was on with a friend of the show, Brett Baer, last evening. And uh, Brett asked for a response from uh, Secretary of State Pompeo to uh, what uh, the uh, would-be ambassador had to say. This is Pompeo on the idea that multilateralism is back and that diplomacy ever left. Where to begin, Brett? Uh, I, I remember what the previous administration did. They described leadership as leading from behind. President Trump never did that. We built out real coalitions, a coalition that crushed the caliphate in Syria, a coalition that's pushed back against the Chinese Communist Party, a coalition that refused to appease Iran. The, the list of work that we've done is great. What we, what we said all along, Brad, and this is where I, I think I take, <laughs> I take a different path. Uh, I couldn't tell exactly from her statement, but multilateralism for the sake of hanging out with your buddies at a cool cocktail party, <laughs> that's not in the best interest of the United States of America. We work with nations when we have common interests and we develop uh, coalitions that actually deliver real results and reflect the reality on the ground. Uh, that wasn't what was happening when we came in here to the State Department. We built out enormous teams. I'm proud of the work the State Department's done. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. It's our responsibility. So long as we have these offices, it's our duty to continue to deliver on American security. And we've done it well, and we'll continue to do so. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned this yesterday about Anthony Blinken, the uh, would-be Secretary of State, who was also introduced yesterday. And uh, <laughs> this piece from David Harsani over at National Review, which is just so good, the return of the blob. Joe Biden, as I've said uh, over the last several weeks, it's become obvious that uh, – what was said in advance of a prospective Biden administration is coming to fruition if there is going to be a Biden administration, which is it's going to be Obama staffers implementing Bolshevik Bernie policies 
including all the, the liberal internationalists returning from the Biden years after four years on the outside. And uh, the, the, the coverage of this is just just so telling the celebutization of uh, your favorite administration, your favorite politicians and their you know, appointed uh, coterie of sycophants. And so in The Guardian, while Mike Pompeo has remained a domestic politician throughout his tenure as Secretary of State, giving the lion's share of his interviews to conservative radio stations in the Midwest, for example, Blinken is very much a born internationalist. And they're just so fascinated by him because he's so hip and wow and now. The Guardian, this is a news story. And this could have easily appeared and, and probably will in the Amazon Post and the New York Times. He went to school in Paris. He learned to play the guitar. He played Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall at graduation. He's so cool. What a rebel. And play football, soccer, and harbor dreams of becoming a filmmaker. He's, you know, he's a renaissance man. He's a raconteur. This is a layered, textured individual. Bon vivant. Before entering the White House under Barack Obama, Blinken used to play a weekly soccer game with U.S. officials, foreign diplomats, and journalists. And he has two singles, love songs, to have lip service and patience uploaded on Spotify. Is this uh, a bio on uh, incoming Secretary of State? Or is this a profile for a dating site? All those con- continuing here at the Guardian. All those contacts and the urbane bilingual charm will be targeted at soothing the frayed nerves of Western allies, reassuring them that the U.S. is back as a conventional team player, not uh, the world's hegemon. My parenthetical remark, well, of course not. The foreign policy priorities in the first days of a Biden administration will be rejoining treaties and agreements that Donald Trump left. Happy day, and it's so exciting, as Harsani says sarcastically. No longer will our foreign policy elites play to the boorish, slack-jawed yokels who listen to AM radio and watch football, football in Kansas City. Blinken, cosmopolitan polyglot, will kick around soccer balls with well-bred diplomats on weekends, and on weekdays he's going to rejoin treaties and agreements ratified by the European Union and China, but not by the United States Senate. We're indeed headed back to Obama-era quote-unquote normalcy. Right. And so the denigration and the mischaracterization of Trump's principled realist foreign policy, America first foreign policy out the door. And Pompeo also responded on Bear's program to the op-ed written by General Mad Dog Mattis, Trump's former uh, sec def, suggesting that uh, it's time to abandon America alone because that's what the internationalists call a restrained foreign policy and the failure to lead from behind in a multilateral way rather than unilaterally advancing America's interests. Pompeo uh, disputing uh, Mattis's characterization. I have a lot of respect for Jim, but he's just dead wrong on that. America first has been at its heart a recognition that when America is secure at home, when America does good things for our own economy, for our own prosperity, that America will be a force for good all around the region and that indeed we can't deliver security, increased security around the world when America is not secure. Uh, I, I take great umbrage of the fact it's been America alone. Uh, I would tell you that our Japanese colleagues, our South Korean colleagues, our Indian colleagues, our Australian colleagues all know that the pivot to Asia was a joke, but that the United States under President Trump actually delivered real benefits to them. And whether it was the work that we've done to build out a, an enormous coalition to go after the socialist Maduro, to go after the Cubans, these are real coalitions, real things that work. It wasn't America alone. It was us doing it with our friends and allies based on shared interest and a reality that recognized central facts about what is and not pretending that things are as we would like them to be. If you recall, that whole pivot to Asia, which uh, Pompeo dismissed, that was uh, Obama-Hillary Clinton era 
policy approach to Southeast Asia that began with the relaxing of sanctions on my, uh, Myanmar. Uh, so with respect to uh, Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State, it is worth noting he was Deputy Secretary of State in, in the Obama administration, but he wasn't without his detractors. And the sainted, at least when he's attacking Republicans, when he did attack Republicans, when he prevented the repeal of Obamacare, the sainted John McCain in 2014 on the nomination of one Anthony Blinken to be Deputy Secretary of State. I will tend to do what I can to <clears throat> prevent this nominee from being confirmed by the United States Senate. He's unqualified. He has refused to answer s- s- simple and fundamental questions that, that I had uh, for him. Unqualified to be a deputy back uh, four years ago, qualified to be Secretary of State now? That could be a fun confirmation hearing. Oh, and then there's this. Records indicate Hunter Biden tried to schedule meetings with Blinken when he was on the board, Hunter, of Burisma, Ukrainian energy company, and Blinken was Deputy Secretary of State. Having minutes, have a few minutes to gra- next week to grab a cup of coffee. I know you're impossibly busy, but would like to get your advice on a couple of things. Hunter Biden wrote in a May 2015 email to Blinken. Absolutely, replied Blinken. Uh, they uh, never met that at that time because Hunter's brother, Bo, died later that month. However, uh, Blinken and Hunter did then meet in July. But they spoke about Bo and the Biden family, according to the Washington Post. The duo did not discuss Burisma. Oh, of course. We're happy to take your, your word for it, too. So, uh, boy, what John McCain had to say about Blinken and now this uh, relationship and communications with Hunter Biden, those are worthy areas of exploration in any potential confirmation hearing. And uh, lest we forget, we have John Kerry introduced as the climate change czar as part of the national security team, because that's a national security issue. And interestingly, I guess it's not one that the Secretary of State can handle. I wonder why that is. Uh, Look, I get it. It's just about window dressing, and that's all John Kerry's good for, is to present and to convey importance about the issue. But uh, John Kerry going over to China, the Chinese communists must be licking their chops. The combination of uh, the Hunter Biden relationship and however compromised this administration from the top down could be, in addition to John Kerry, who uh, leads with surrender, forget leading from behind, he leads with surrender, as he did on the Iranian nuclear deal. So he'll go over there and extract promises from the Chinese to uh, what decommission some of the coal burning plants they're building, and uh, they won't. And in exchange, he'll what let them run roughshod over Taiwan, the South China Sea. I don't know. He'll probably have Huawei building our 5G network before it's all said and done. Quite the uh, leading from behind ban that Joe Biden got back together. This is Dan Proft. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Switching gears from uh, the Biden transition, which, oh, by the way, uh, it is worth noting that Biden conceded was going very well. So I know the republic was imperiled for a week there where there were arguments about the transition and the GSA formally releasing funds for Biden's team to begin the transition. Now, now everything's all of a sudden right with the world. 
so so fascinating. Uh, something Joe Biden conceded with that that interview with Lester Holt that I had mentioned before the break. But uh, with respect to Trump, a thought exercise here. A thought exercise. Uh, what a Trump concession speech, if you will, and it doesn't need to take the form of a formal concession, what form it would take if, after exhausting, if and after, listen closely, after exhausting his legal avenues and up against the December 14th deadline, it uh, turns out that Trump doesn't have the 270 that he needs and Biden does. How should Trump leave the stage? Not that he's going away, that he's disappearing, but, but ending his presidency if that's what comes to pass. Something we're thinking about. And since you got a long weekend and you got uh, family and friends together, something to kick around maybe, what you would like to hear from the president. You know, again, thinking about the backdrop of these Georgia Senate runoffs, which are so critical both in terms of Republicans keeping the Senate, keeping control of the Senate, and then by extension, maintaining some of Trump's accomplishments, extending the Trump legacy. So there is still much at stake for President Trump, regardless of the outcome of these legal challenges. Obviously, those are front and center, and I'm not dismissing them to that point before I get to what I think could be something akin to a useful parting offering before I get to that. Jenna Ellis, one of the formal members of Trump's legal team, on with Charles Payne yesterday on Fox Business, saying the following, because there's been this new development. It's not just the state of play with the litigation. It's also now three state legislators, legislatures, excuse me, the legislators there, three state legislatures opening investigations into the administration of the elections in their states. Oversight hearings are forthcoming. Well, importantly, we have a pending appeal before the Supreme Court. We also have one in the Third Circuit that just yesterday agreed to hear an expedited appeal. And really importantly, we now have three state legislatures in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona that have agreed to hold hearings because it's in everyone's best interest and all Americans to make sure that the truth about the voter fraud and the proof that we have comes out. And so they are very concerned. And let's remember that it's the state legislatures that are constitutionally vested with uh, the selection process of the Electoral College delegates. That's the safeguard that we have in our system to make sure that elections that are corrupted do not um, ultimately render a wrong selection for the president that is outside of what the people actually voted for. So we now have three state legislatures that are very concerned about the corruption of this election and are willing to get to the bottom of it. So this is far from over and President Trump will continue to fight. All right. Far from over. Continue to fight. You've got a couple weeks left at least, including these legislative hearings. Those could be illuminating in the states that were mentioned also swing states, of course, uh, all states where there's litigation pending that the results are in dispute. Uh, and also Sidney Powell yesterday on with Lou Dobbs, not part of the Trump legal team, formally, as we know. Uh, Sidney Powell previewing a complaint she will be filing in Georgia today, she said. Well, I think uh, no later than tomorrow. Uh, it's just going to be it's, it's a massive document and it's going to have a lot of exhibits. And- and uh, and who will be the defendant or defendants? Uh, the defendants are going to be folks in Georgia who are responsible for uh, supposedly making sure the elections in Georgia are done properly. And there are just countless incidents of voter fraud and election fraud writ large in Georgia. And for the uh, momentous claims Sidney Powell has been making for the better part of the last week, uh, she just continues to double down on big claims, describing more, more description of the complaint she's going to file, what it will assert and what she says it will substantiate. 
combined with the recognition of the deadline she knows she's up against. Well, obviously, it couldn't be more urgent. But yes, the time deadline should be able to be met. And the evidence is so overwhelming. It's almost as though they they were so blatant about it. They expected us to catch it. And, you know, maybe it's a diversion from something else that's going on. I don't know. But it's also clear that there was foreign intrusion into our voting systems. And that's going to be the real where the rubber meets the road. And uh, when that rubber meets the road, the Trump presidency will be sustained. Do you think that we're going to see the Trump presidency saved? Yes, I definitely do. There are there's no issue in my mind, but that he was elected in an absolute landslide nationwide. Big claims. Uh, we'll see what uh, the complaint looks like and um, how that proceeds through the courts, assuming that it is filed over the coming couple of weeks. I'll just leave that there. I want to get to what perhaps a Trump concession speech in quotation marks should sound like. You know, there's it's a blank slate. You can take this wherever you want. Here's my offering. What my suggestion, my draft through some words together that I think would be a nice transition if it comes to pass. I keep emphasizing that because I'm not conceding. I'm not saying they shouldn't exhaust their legal options. I'm just saying if on December 14th he is in this place, then he should speak to the people and uh, he should have a way to memorialize what has been accomplished over the last four years, what has been exposed over the last four years, and what the path forward is. Here goes. I love America. This is a great nation and we are a great people who are always striving to be greater. I'm an eternal optimist and I'm optimistic about America's future even though my time as its chief executive has come to an end for now. Wink, wink, nod, nod. That'll make the D.C. press corps go berserk. Four years ago, you started a movement to reclaim your government. My candidacy was your pump to drain the D.C. swamp. There's plenty of gas left in that pump. I love our beautiful fossil fuels. And so you should not stop telling those ruling class politicians who would rather lord over you than represent you, than represent your interests, to frack off. We did some incredible things together. We built the strongest economy the world has ever seen. We stopped treating our enemies like friends and letting our friends take advantage of us. We restored America for Americans of every race, religion, and disposition. In the process, we ripped the mask off radical leftists who took over the Democrat Party and exposed them for the thuggish mob of ingrates they are. They neither respect the rule of law nor those charged with enforcing it. They have no appreciation for our history, for the sacrifices of those who came before them, so they could attend an Ivy League school and bitch about how oppressed they are on social media. The totalitarian left was rejected on November 3rd, as highlighted by the unexpected gains we made in the House while also retaining control of the Senate. Who would have thought I'd get 12 million more votes than I did in 2016 and lose? Very strange. But that's a story for another day. The story for today is your story. It's the story of the people who play by the rules in America. It's the story of Americans who put a uniform on to defend America. It's the story of Americans who open the schoolhouse doors to children who have the wrong address or household income to give them the same opportunity to learn that the children of the rich and the well-connected have. It's the story of problem-solving Americans who serve their fellow man by opening a business. Think about the contribution to humanity the pharmaceutical companies who developed COVID vaccines have made because of, rather than in spite of, their pursuit of profits. It's the story of you, the deplorables, who never lost faith in America's founding principles, even when your elected leaders did. In the process, you did exactly what we set out to do. You made America great again. I'm forever grateful to have served as your president for the last four years. God bless you, and God bless America, the greatest nation the world has ever seen 
and will ever see. All right. I'll send that uh, over to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and think what, think uh, uh, get a handle on what the president thinks. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, Michelle Weldon, she's a professor emerita Northwestern, that means retired, and uh, Medill, journalism professor, and no doubt you won't be surprised when you hear what she wrote in the Huffington Post, to her sons, effectively an open letter to her three sons, I love you, but I do not want to die because of your good time. Now that two of you are living back home because of COVID-19, it becomes my business where you go and what you do on the weekends. And when your middle brother comes home to visit for Thanksgiving, we all need to be vigilant. You are my sons. I love all three of you, but this takes priority. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm relieved all three of you are years out of high school and college because as athletes, you would have likely insisted you compete. I would not have gone along with the parents like the ones who recently attempted to sue the Illinois High School Association. So sports... So fall sports could resume. This common sense gap is not generational, but perhaps perhaps informational and emotional. An empathy gap. She cares. And how personal actions lead to communal reactions and harm. Everyone's behavior has consequences beyond themselves. Did I fail to model that, or did you miss that key point? Hey, Mom, why don't you talk to me rather than writing in the Huffington Post? But I understand she's signaling to the world this is an example from which we can all learn. She continues, the blue bowl of masks and plastic gloves by the phone in the breakfast room and the hand sanitizer in almost every room of the house are not for show. These are because the pandemic is real, even if you don't think it will happen to you or me. Of course you love me. I'm your mom, and I love you always. I'm not sure if it is denial, lack of understanding, or blocking out worst-case scenario thinking. But at this address, I'm the only one in the family who's wearing a mask when the Amazon delivery person drops off another package that one of you ordered. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, goes on to describe the Thanksgiving they're doing. It won't be normal, though she is making a small turkey and hopes they can enjoy it together as long as everybody is apart, at, you know, 6, 10, 12 feet, 30 feet apart, and masked up risk averse i guess is what you would call me but i'm not so sure that it's a bad thing to be now because what if you're wrong what if the chance you take is not just an exercise in free will and asserting your right to enjoy yourself but a decision that harms someone other than you what if that someone is me says mom for more on this we're pleased to be joined again by jeffrey tucker editorial director at the american institute for economic research author of the market loves you why you should love it back and the recently released liberty or lockdown jeffrey tucker yeah. um mom that retired journalism professor from northwestern mm-hmm. says lockdown and uh uh you know she doesn't she doesn't want to not let you have fun jeffrey tucker but uh, mm-hmm. not at her not the expense of her life Mm-hmm. You know, I congratulate you for reading that article. I, I don't know, over these months, I've somehow lost the stomach to uh, to read articles like that. It's it's pretty weird. Um, it's uh, almost a psychopathology at this point, the desire to control other people's behavior based on a risk that you believe that you have, you know? Uh, 
and and for a mother to talk that way about her, uh, her children is absolutely shocking. And uh, as you point out, we are writing in the HuffPo. <laughs> yes. This is all about signaling. It's not really about public health, you know. Um, so it's hard for me to read articles like that and grapple with them, but sometimes I do. And and one of the reasons I don't like to read articles like that is that it requires that then I sit down at my computer, research point by point, and then write articles up about it to refute them, you know. Uh, so that's why I'm careful. But I did this the other day with an, with an article uh, called The Blizzard of Bogus Journalism on COVID. And I, I took apart three uh, articles point by point, citing science over hysteria. And it was a fun exercise. Uh, it, one one of them was just stupid. This is a, um, uh, a big report in England that uh, somebody looked at a, a bunch of track and trace apps and, and concluded that a, that a lot of the people who tested positive from COVID had been uh, shopping. So the, the article headline was, uh, you know, shopping will give you COVID. So, right. So I kind of made fun of that. that in that case, it was actually a, a, a decent thing that the Public Health uh, Services of England corrected the article and said that that was an absurd thing that, you know, um, by that same standard, you could say that taking showers and breathing also gets you COVID because most most people do that. I mean, after all, most people go shopping, so it's hardly a surprise that a lot well, of people with COVID don't shopping. Yeah. And, and 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 when we come back, I, I want to p- pick up on this. And also, um, so it's 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 what um, what is reported that's bogus, and also what's real that isn't reported when it comes to understanding uh, COVID and the implications of the various policy choices that are being contemplated and ultimately made. More with Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research, author of "The Market Loves You: Why You Should Love It Back," and the recently released "Liberty or Lockdown." We'll be right back. The more you'll know, this is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, and the recently released Liberty or Lockdown. Uh, we're talking about uh, some of your efforts to debunk bogus journalism on COVID, and there's so much. But I also wanted to get your take on the real science, the real sort of peer-reviewed research that holds up to scrutiny that just isn't covered. You uh, made mention of one of those recent studies in, in a piece that you wrote, um, this the study out of the Icon School of Medicine in conjunction with the U.S. military, uh, there's also a study out of Denmark, uh, a bunch of Danish researchers on mask wearing, finding that mask wearing is essentially ineffectual for stopping transmission. Those two studies, that reputable studies published in reputable outlets, reputable researchers, have gotten almost no attention. Study that came out, uh, well, that military study, by the way, was very interesting because. They were under the most extreme lockdown you can imagine, enforced by the military, and they divided in two groups, one which was track and trace and isolate, you know, as they say, um, and the other was not, and they found no difference in the infections. And I thought it was just interesting that still the virus uh, spread 
uh, despite a military enforced quarantine. Like nobody got closer than six feet from anybody, and they're all wearing N95 masks. So it's just crazy. That mask study was interesting because uh, that that was that involved like three thousand people. But, you know, they had half wear masks, half wear not. They couldn't. There was statistically no significant difference between infection rates. Means the masks don't matter. Once again, the virus outsmarts all these uh, plans to. Um, to beat it back or avoid it or crush it or whatever our latest thing is we, we want to do. And then there was another study, one of 20, that came out a couple of days ago I reported about um, from three French you know, epidemiologists and statisticians. And they looked all over the world at all the differences, stringencies between the people who locked down, those who didn't, the people who went about their normal life and those who uh, uh, you know, imposed a kind of a, a despot, a COVID despotism. And found no statistically, statistically significant relationship uh, between the two. I mean, in other words, lockdowns have worked. And, you know, again, the, you know, I, I kind of find myself in this business. The, one of these studies comes, seems to come out about every every uh, two or three days and report on it. And, yeah, the press doesn't report on it. And it's actually uh, very frustrating to me um, that, that, it's, it's, that it's not being reported on. These things are not being reported on. The press doesn't seem to care. I don't know if it's... The, the, they, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, they, they seem to have their settled opinion on on the matter, and uh, will only report people who share their opinion, and 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 won't even ask. I mean, that the lack of intellectual curiosity won't even prompt a Tony Fauci or a Robert Redfield uh, or a Michael Osterholm to comment on these studies. Uh, I mean, that's not oh, relevant. Yeah. Uh, that the science, the you know, the debate is over. The science is settled, so we don't need any more science. It seems to be. Oh, I, I don't know if you, you did. You catch that thing that appeared in that of Wuhan the other day? Was it, yes, like, uh, uh, asymptomatic uh, cases. Yeah, to like twenty different researchers. They they examined ten million uh, uh, people and were unable to document a single, not even one, positive test among cl- uh, close contacts of a, a so-called asymptomatic cases, which is asymptomatic cases. What we used to call not sick by the way. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have new language. Now. But they couldn't document a single case in which a person not sick made another person sick, which may sound obvious to you, but uh, but it's apparently not so obvious to American health uh, public health uh, officials because that's the whole basis for the lockdown. The idea is that you don't know if you're sick or not, and you're still going to spread it, and so you could be a super spreader even though you feel perfectly healthy. That turns out to have at least no verified uh, basis in the in a, in a study out of Wuhan of 10 million people. Now, I, I think the study, you, you could say, oh, you can't trust anything out of China. But look, um, it wasn't reported in China either. That's why they published it in an American journal. Yeah. Communications. So, well, well, and I looked at, yeah, I was blown away by the study. Has there ever been a bigger study of the whole question of asymptomatic spread? And I looked it up in an American press, you know, under every search term I could. I found only one article that appeared in Russia today about it, but not a single American press outlet has covered this. It's a scandal. It, it, it is just amazing, too, because uh, what, what's the low threshold number in terms of the projected percentage of asymptomatic cases? I think it's like 20 percent. So let, oh, let's just the, the CDC has a range. And this, this, will, this will really help you understand with great precision. Uh, the percentage of asymptomatic cases. They say it's between 10 and 70%. Yeah, <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. Now that you know it's, that. So it's between zero and 100? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, got it. Well, okay. So let's let's say it's ten percent. I mean, this goes to something Rand Paul said uh, the other week about uh, Tony Fauci and and just this that, that there's a lot more people who have. Uh, who are not essentially vulnerable to COVID than is being reported that the 10 million or 11 million cases that we know of, the percentage of people, there was a study out this week out of England suggesting that maybe a quarter of the population has an innate immunity to COVID-19, mm-hmm. uh, that they don't produce antibodies, they they don't need to get infected to, 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 to demonstrate their immunity, so they're just naturally immune. Now this uh, percentage of asymptomatic cases and the lack of spread there, that you would think would inform our understanding of exactly how big is the universe of people who are vulnerable, as well as the decisions we're making about things like keeping businesses and schools closed. You'd think it would inform that. And, you know, the, even the New York, I love saying that, even the New York Times, because the amount of ridiculous uh, journalism coming out of the New York Times is a little bit much to handle at this point. But they, even they reported uh, the other day that, um, yeah, you get the virus, it gives you lasting immunities, even eight months after this. And most people have recovered and have enough immune cells to fend off the virus and prevent Ill- illness and and, um, and and the lasting T-cell immunity. And you, know, you look at places like Taiwan or South Korea or Thailand, all these other places, very, very, very low infection rates, and discovered that they had a pretty high rate of infection from SARS-CoV-1 back in 2002, 2003. So that gets embedded in the T-cell memory. So there's a lot more people that already have pre-existing immunities, which is exactly what Rand said to Fauci. And Fauci acted like he was spatty off some sort of unscientific gibberish. But now it's been, I don't know if I'm going to say confirmed and admitted by the New York Times that Rand Paul was exactly right. He is Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director, American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, and the recently released Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey Tucker, great work as always. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and a, a, a happy Thanksgiving story, something to be thankful for. Well, especially if you're uh, Richard Wilbanks or his puppy Gunner. There's, I think the gratitude goes in both directions. Richard Wilbanks and Gunner. This uh, King Charles Spaniel are the, uh, the, 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 two, the two that were part of a video that went viral. This is uh, the Florida guy who jumped into a lagoon to pry his Spaniel gunner free from the jaws of a little gator that had clamped down on him. And uh, the, the key part of this, too, not just rescuing his, his dog and uh, actually and then letting the gator go, too, all, all went on to... Uh, live another day, but also doing so while never having the cigar that he was smoking leave his mouth. That was awesome. Uh, so uh, Will Banks is talking to the press for the first time. He talked to USA Today, and he uh, described it as like a missile. We were only about three feet away from it, the gator, but it struck like a snake. It had gunner and a vice grip, and I just rushed in. Now Richard and Louise Wilbanks came to Estero, Florida, in Lee County, which is actually not far from 
where I've got a little place in Naples. Maybe I'll have to go visit Will Banks and Gunner. They came to uh, Estero by way of Central Texas Hill Country because they've got uh, one of their kids is down here. They're you know very uh, much nature oriented, paintings of seahorses and uh, and so forth in their family room, as this USA Today reporter describes. And uh, Richard Wilbank said, it's wonderful to be able to share our lives with wildlife. You know, they're in a very scenic area. Uh, the um, he, he talks about uh, the dog, though. Immediately after the attack, Gunner was in shock. Once Richard was able to pry Gunner free, the gator clamped down on his hands, and then he had to free himself. And uh, both he and Gunner finally got back to the house, both dripping with blood. They went to took Gunner to an animal hospital where doctors found a puncture wound and and stitched Hunter up. And then Will Banks went uh, to get an x-ray and uh, showed only some water in his lungs. He was fine as well. So both uh, recovered just fine. And uh, as, as Richard Will Banks describes it, Gunner has a new leash on life, a new leash on life. Just awesome. And we had this incident in Chicago over the summer where a gator got uh, – loose in a lagoon in Chicago, and because we're such a hick town, it uh, captivated the imagination of Chicago for a couple of weeks, and we flew in this uh, gator hunter named Frank Robb from the south and got this uh, little, I don't know, three or four foot gator out of the lagoon, and Frank Robb was a hero, and this is nothing against Frank Robb, but I don't know, if I had my druthers, I'm thinking about Richard Wilbanks uh, whistling him in next time a gator gets loose, somebody's pet gator gets loose in a lagoon in Chicago or or anywhere else, but uh, a, a wild story, I mean, wild video that was captured, uh, and I always wonder about these videos. Who is actually filming the video, and why were they doing nothing other than just filming the video? But nonetheless, uh, everybody saw the video, millions of views, uh, Gunner uh, and Richard Wilbanks' happy ending, and even the Gator had uh, a happy ending, even though he didn't get the, the Spaniel that he was after. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show, including Parlor. A rule of thumb for journalists. Rule of thumb for journalists when it comes to reporting in general, perhaps COVID specifically. This from Holman Jenkins at the Wall Street Journal. When you find yourself trying to peddle emotion, stop. When you catch yourself selecting facts and claims and metaphors for their sentimental wallop rather than intellectual merit, rethink. The public needs information and context, not help milking its tear ducts. He's offering those uh, rules of the road, if you will, for journalists because of uh, an NPR report that marked another grim milestone. You know, Rachel, each of these terrible new milestones is so big they can start to feel incomprehensible. So I've been struggling to find a way to put such a terrible tragedy into some kind of context. It's hard, but 250,000 deaths is about five times the number of U.S. troops killed in combat in Vietnam. It's nearly five times the number of Americans who died in combat in World War I. Jenkins writes, those words were spoken with the dramatic intonation that NPR apparently now requires of its on-air performers, indicating not informational content, 
but somebody's idea of an appropriate emotional response to be extorted from listeners. And yet the question that started the discussion could have been answered in another way, more befitting a news organization. 250,000 deaths is 9% more than the estimated U.S. death toll from the 1957 flu, adjusted for population. It's 34% larger than the 1968 flu's death toll. It's about one-fifth of the 1918 pandemics. Jenkins writes, at least our reporter didn't tell us that laying the victims end-to-end would reach from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. Right. It's not uh, like heart disease, which kills an estimated 655,000 Americans a year and will likely continue doing so for the foreseeable future. Why not educate your audience? Holman Jenkins asks somewhat rhetorically, but he does it anyway. It begins with natural selection. Unknown millions of virus types exist in the world. The number of individual viruses believed to be 10 times the number of biological cells. A liter of seawater contains about 10 billion viruses. Viruses are a major driver, perhaps the key driver, of genetic ferment in the biosphere. Some 20 to 40% of all bacterial cells in the ocean die from viral infection each day. We wouldn't be here without this giant, complicated mixmaster. It's a tragedy for humanity when a new deadly virus comes into the world, leaving a noticeable imprint on the mortality tables, accounting for 9% of all U.S. deaths this year. Unlike car accidents and opioid overdoses, however, COVID deaths are likely to be much reduced next year. Human immune systems will adapt. Vaccines will be deployed. We get invaluable help, which our ancestors never received, from science to endure this new threat from nature as we continue the activities necessary for human survival and advancement. The idea that going from COVID deaths of 24999 to 25000 is a milestone is the horriest kind of fake news, writes Jenkins. And isn't it, though? For more on this... We're pleased to be joined by our friend and award-winning investigative journalist, Cheryl Atkinson. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us again. Appreciate it. Good to join you. So what about that? Uh, I, I love the uh, Jenkins you know, rules of the road for journalists. It, it actually calls to mind, uh, and it was noted on his passing, Jim Lair's, like 20 rules that he had for how he conducts himself as a journalist. And it basically comported with what Jenkins writes here. If you're trying to peddle emotion, if you're trying to select facts to elicit an emotional response from your audience, rather than provide context and consequence, then just stop it. Well, and I think that's absolutely correct. But I think there's more to it. And this is really what my new book, Slanted, takes a look at, what it's all about, is why this information landscape has changed so much and been transformed from, I think, what we used to think of as journalism and how it was practiced to this almost unrecognizable place where reporters seem to think it's their job now to make you feel a certain way, preferably in their view, feel how they do or their corporate and political interests feel about a certain topic. And I think even what's worse, we've seen the idea embraced by many people that now these third parties, political and corporate interests, are supposed to get between us and our information, make sure we don't see certain things, certain scientific studies, certain views that they've decided are wrong, particularly because they cut against their interest, their money interest, but that's what's behind it. But we're told that they're just fact-checking for us or they're just curating our information. And I think this is a really dangerous place where journalism is today. And it's bled over these narratives and special interests that have largely started to control the news, have bled over into big tech and social media because they understood people were still getting their unfettered access to information online and weren't being controlled. So that had to be stopped. And I think that's the stage we've moved into now. You referenced uh, this dangerous place that we're in, and I want to get your viewpoint on, on where you think this is going. And I highlight a couple of things to, to build on what you were saying. Bob Epstein, uh, the Harvard-trained psychologist on Tucker Carlson show the other night, saying 
Uh, and he's, this is somebody who's been researching uh, Google for a long time in terms of their ability to manipulate information and thus influence votes. He looked at it in 2016. He looked at it in 2020. Said Google moved at a minimum of six million votes in the 2020 election based on his research uh, through their manipulation of search algorithms. Uh, report out that Facebook also altered a, a prioritization score to uh, downgrade outlets like Breitbart and upgrade outlets like CNN in the closing days of the election so that people would get uh, the information that that Facebook wanted people to get in their news feeds. There's that. And then there's the response even from the quote-unquote mainstream journalistic D.C. press corps community uh, like this, the the response you had from the Politico reporter who uh, apologized to Twitter for retweeting that New York Post piece about Hunter Biden saying, you know, I wasn't trying to to advance the story. I was just trying to um, highlight the infirmities with the story. And I apologize for it, uh, retweeting something that you had taken down and because his account got suspended for retweeting it. So, you know, it, it, those sort of uh, complementary examples tell us that we're going down what path when it comes to a free press, frankly. Well, we've been going down this dangerous path. And I interviewed an executive from a national news organization who said to me the fear of being deplatformed. So even those who want to tell the truth, who aren't aboard with these corporate and political narratives, they're bullied and they're actually coerced into self-censorship. He said that the newsman in me wants to tell the truth about certain stories, but what sort of Pyrrhic victory would that be if I'm then deplatformed and can't have any voice at all? So he said, I pull my punches. Now think about that. This is a major national news organization that's admitting they don't put certain things out for fear of these organized mob attacks and controversialization of him and his authors and the platform that happens when you go off the narrative they want you to be. And this is being effective in impacting what we get to see in the final product on news. So I, I think that there will be an outgrowth, I hope, of alternative platforms. I know there are people, smart people and technical people trying to think of ways where independent information can be presented in various views and scientific studies in a way that you cannot be deplatformed and censored and taken down because you've simply expressed an opinion or given a view or put out information, true or not, guess what? You have a right to put out information that may not be true. And the arbiters that are appointing themselves censors, oftentimes news organizations, have been famously wrong about so many things. For them to try to pretend they're the ones that are going to tell us what's true and what's not, particularly when we don't yet know and something's developing, is, is actually silly. And yet that accomplishes the goal of making sure we don't see certain information you know, and views. You know, it's it's so interesting because that sort of explanation reminds me of the uh, I pull punches, I have sacred cows because I, I have to protect my access to, you know, newsmakers and people who are influential. Right. So so I'm not going to be a real journalist for some people because I need my access to them. And and uh, it's remarkable to me that journalists don't understand, number one, that they're being useful idiots. Number two is that um, as soon as they outlive their utility, then they'll be cast aside whether or not um, they've – you know, whether or not they protected those institutions or those sources for a period of time or not. Well, if news organizations had the will to stand strong and weren't conflicted with these by these interests and influences, they have the power. We have the power. And I used to argue the same point I talked about in my last book that, like you said, 
there will be beat reporters who say, I have to stay in good with the State Department or the White House or the FDA, or I won't get access to the next big interview or to the next big scoop. Well, guess what? They're not telling you anything that is a big scoop. They're not giving you news. They're giving you propaganda that they want put out. They're not giving you other stuff. So you're not going to be harmed if they cut you off. And a recognition of that would enable them to have the power to just report honestly and fairly. And if everybody did that, they'd have no control over the news by denying access to the next handout interview or piece of propaganda that they want people to have. But everybody plays the game, and so it turns out to be quite effective. She is Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure. Her new book, which was just released this week, yesterday, I think, slanted how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. You want to pick that up. Cheryl, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program and uh, switching gears to go back to uh, the environmental climate change czar guy. John Kerry is back and this is what he had to say being rolled out quite literally as part of the Biden national security team. President Joe Biden will trust in God and he will also trust in science to guide our work on Earth to protect God's creation. Trust in God and be guided by science. Uh, God and science. Joe Biden is a God and science administration. Reminds me of what Voltaire said about the Holy Roman Empire, that it was neither holy nor Roman. Uh, And of course, uh, some of the uh, big companies are falling in with the anticipated incoming Biden administration like GM announcing that it was withdrawing from the California emissions preemption litigation spearheaded by the Trump administration, falling in line with the Biden administration, excited about uh, a moving to uh, electric vehicles, uh-huh. even though GM still pushing for a, uh, a single national standard for emissions. For more on uh, all things green, if you will, please be joined again by Joel Kotkin. He is Urban Futures Fellow at Chapman University, Executive Director at the Urban Reform Institute, and the author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You wrote a piece, uh, City Journal, that uh, the uh, green endgame runs through Biden. John Kerry is, I guess, going to be the point person for uh, that endgame running through the Biden administration. Yeah, I think that he's a perfect exemplar of the sort of merger of the upper classes and green. And what I found really interesting is this has been a very strong relationship, at least starting from the 1950s, where it wasn't the left that was really pushing the environmentalist positions. And it really was coming from the you know, the largest corporations and the wealthiest people. Kerry was not born with a huge amount of money, but he married a lot of money, which is the other way of getting yes. You know, and I, I understand, you know, completely, you know, you have people who themselves, they already have what they want to have. They have probably more than they need. Their lifestyles are not going to be hurt by um, by this kind of legislation. So why not do it? And they get brownie points. And, and then in many cases, they make all sorts of money because they, if you're, you know, and I'm, I admire in many ways Elon Musk, but in other ways, if you have a mandate 
for electric cars, you're going to, and you're Elon Musk, you know, you're not going to oppose that. And I think that this is, uh, there are tech companies that have made lots of money on renewable energy, um, the losers in this, and that's just the way life is, you know, some win, some lose. And the losers will be obviously people working in the oil industry. Probably we'll see a reduction in, in, in uh, some of the car manufacturing. Um, we're also going to have a big problem with electric cars. One, there's an environmental problem uh, in terms of, of the, the ingredients, the, the rare earths and others. But the, probably the, the more significant problem uh, that really concerns me, I, I think, is, is the fact that you're going to have incredibly expensive electricity because this is one of the big problems that we now have with um, here in California where I live, which is um, if if you go to renewables, um, you end up with very expensive electricity. And then how are you going to power all these electric cars when you don't have enough electricity? Well, and and and, and, and that one out. <laughs> yeah, and and importantly too, I mean, the, so you increase the cost of electricity significantly, and that turns then that's regressive in nature. That's right. So the the poor well, no have less disposable that. income. So I mean, there's there's something inherently inequitable about that, combined with the fact that you have middle income people subsidizing the purchase of $90,000 Teslas from wealthy pe- for wealthy people. Well, and, and of course, there's also, let's say, in many parts of the country. For instance, here in California, you have high energy prices. Now, for someone like me, I live in Orange County, um, you know, 10 miles from the coast. Uh, we have relatively mild climate, don't have to run the air conditioner all the time. Poorer people tend to be living in um, the inner areas here in California, which do get quite hot and also get colder. Now, not to mention, I mean, nobody in California should complain to anyone in Chicago about weather. What about all the people um, who are going to have to heat their homes in, in the winter with very expensive electricity? Say the, the Midwest, you know, where you are, um, has benefited from relatively low price energy. Yes. Um, you take that advantage away, and I think that, that a lot of your competitive strengths are going to be weakened. And, 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 and I think also, um, I think it's going to make it much harder for us to do what President-elect Biden wants, and, and rightfully so, which is the reshoring of industry from overseas to the United States. Well, our great advantage relative to, let's say, Germany um, and Japan in particular and Korea is the price of energy. Well, if we make the price of energy as high as it is in Germany, why should a German manufacturer come here? Well, here's the other thing, too, and you, you mentioned this uh, in your piece, uh, uh, but the Green uh, Green Deal goes through uh, Joe Biden at amgreatness.com. I think I misspoke, said City Journal, amgreatness.com. You're everywhere. Um, and, uh, and it was... Um, these uh, environmentalists from Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace, to Michael Schellenberger, who wrote this big apology for contributing to the demagoguery and the gaslighting of people with respect mm-hmm. to environmentalism over the last 30 years, uh, just a few months ago, to um, to, to even Michael Moore with his uh, this documentary that he underwrote called Planet of the Humans, talking about some of the environmentalist scams, effectively, uh, when it comes to alternative forms of energy. So on the one hand, we have that. And the other hand, boy, the left uh, just uh, says what we were doing 15 years ago, the only problem was it wasn't big enough. So we had these green energy uh, industrial policy gambits like Solyndra back in the Obama administration. And now we come to a Biden administration, uh, potentially 12 years later, and uh, they're just scaling what they were doing a decade ago. Well, I think that that uh, unfortunately, what's happened, and you know, I'm an old middle of the road Democrat myself, 
is that the Democratic Party has abandoned the middle and working classes has, and now you know, basically services two classes. At least this is in my argument on neo-feudalism. One is yeah. the oligarchy, which is Wall Street, which sees enormous opportunities in this, in, in this kind of uh, transition, um, and the tech companies. Um, those, those are, those are uh, uh, one big constituency. And then what I call the clerisy, you know, people who are at, in academia and the media, you know, and, and are also somewhat insulated from the, the worst effects of high energy prices and certainly aren't going to lose their jobs on, on, on the assembly line or, uh, or in the oil fields or, or as a trucker because um, that's not what they do for a living. I mean, there's, you know, there's a, there's a class dynamic. I was brought up as a Democrat with a sort of social democratic uh, orientation. Um, you know, my family came from Russia. My, my, you know, my, my, my grandparents were union members. So, I mean, I, you know, that kind of Democratic Party is beginning to disappear, and energy may be the thing that pushes it fastest. Um, whereas I think that, you know, in many cases, um, you know, President-elect Biden will be restrained by a more moderate Congress, both in the House and the Senate, um, through executive orders, which is what President Obama and, and, and unfortunately our presidents in general are doing. Through executive orders, you you could have very drastic policies. Look, we here in California... Governor Newsom announces the end of gas-powered cars by 2035. There's not even a there's not even a legislative hearing about it. I mean, you're, you're sitting there saying, <laughs> you know, "Are we really living in a, yeah. in, a, in a democracy?" And uh, and I increasingly think we're not. He is Joel Kofkin. He is the Urban Futures Fellow, Chapman University, Executive Director at the Urban Reform Institute, and author of "The Coming of Neo Feudalism: A Warning to the Global Middle Class." Joel, thanks as always for, for joining us, and have a happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thank you. Here I go again on my own. Going down the only road I've ever known. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show and uh, returning to Joe Biden's sit down with NBC's Lester Holt. Biden had this to say about uh, his view on reopening schools that have been shuttered because of COVID or because of the teachers union's perspective on COVID, perhaps more accurately. This is what Biden had to say. It takes a lot of money to get them back. The estimates are 150 to 200 billion dollars for the year it would take to get safely open our schools, for example. We know that we have to change everything from the ventilation systems in schools. We know we have to change the sanitary, we have to make sure the sanitary, everyone from sanitary workers right through to the bus drivers. They have to be clued in. They have to be protected. They need the PPE. They need the gear. They need the ability to have smaller modules of classes. You've got schools closed right now in places where restaurants are open. Are our priorities correct? I think we should be able to do both. But look, I'm very concerned about the schools. Very uh, we have to do those things that Joe Biden said in order to reopen the schools. Is that what uh, the science and the data tells us? We have to retrofit all the ventilation systems of K through 12 schools in America. How long will that take? We have to, uh, I don't know, reorder the school day and the 
numbers in which students travel, not just from classroom to classroom, but even from home to school via the bus? Is that what we have to do in order to reopen schools? He acts as if there is uh, no real-world example of schools being open, except, of course, there are many. There have been many in Western European nations for the better part of the year, starting with Sweden. And, of course, we have private schools all over the country that are open and operating, too. This is very much like the uh, argument against uh, concealed carry back in the day. You're going to have the Wild West. And it was argued right up until the Supreme Court decisions a decade ago in McDonald and then Heller. You're going to have the Wild West. You're going to have the Wild West. People get in a fender bender. You're going to have shootouts. And this despite the fact that Florida had a right to carry law going back into the late 80s. And it wasn't happening what they were saying, but it didn't stop them from saying it. And so what's happening in the schools isn't what they said will happen or isn't uh, the concerns that they say they have have not manifested themselves in all of these school systems. And yet they keep saying it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tierney, contributing editor at City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Dan. So um, is that what we have to do to get the schools back open, what Joe Biden said? It's just absurd. You know, Joe Biden claims to be following the science, and the science is just overwhelming on this, that schools are safe. It's been shown, you know, in the United States where there's very low rates of infection, and the best thing, this is the, it's like the most impressive science study I, I've ever seen in Sweden. They looked at the entire population and they had a great natural experiment there where they closed the senior high schools for two months during the pandemic in the spring. And those kids stayed home. The junior high schools stayed open with no masks you know, no reduced class sizes. They just operated normally. And now as expected, and as we found everywhere, the kids don't get infected. That's, you know, it's not a risk to them. But the big argument for the lockdown fanatics, the teachers union is, well, the kids are going to infect the teachers, they're going to infect their parents, you know, and they'll spread the virus. So what these researchers did in Sweden, they looked at every parent of junior high school kids in the country and of senior high school kids, hundreds of thousands of parents. And they and, and they had access to all their medical records, being of being Sweden having this sort of nationalized system. And they looked at all the at all the COVID tests, at all the COVID hospitalizations, doctor visits, everything. And with the, and they found basically that the keeping the junior high schools open had no effect on COVID, essentially. That you know, that the parents of the of the kids who went to school, who kept going to the classroom, not treated or hospitalized for COVID any more than the parents whose kids stayed home. And among the teachers, uh, the teacher's rate of being treated for COVID um, um, or being hospitalized was actually lower than the parents' rate. Um, so, you know, and they, and they concluded basically that if, you know, that there was a slightly higher rate of of, of, of COVID positive tests among the parents who, you know, and the teachers in the classroom, but it was so minimal and it didn't, and it didn't, you know, lead to additional hospitalizations. It didn't lead to treatment to serious cases. And they concluded that if you had closed every junior high school in Sweden, it would have reduced the, you know, the, the, the number of positive tests nationally by 1%. And it really would have had, you know, virtually no effect on actually people dying or, people being treated for COVID. Well, so, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, until they win an international Emmy, those researchers, I'm not sure we can take their <laughs> word for it. When we come back with John Tierney, I want to uh, talk more about the schools and uh, the piece that he wrote for City Journal that he's referencing, Lockdown Addicts, and uh, who, who the, the, the chief 
concern about keeping schools closed, how the students actually get hurt, and it's not because of COVID infections. More with John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, and co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It, talking about his piece, uh, Lockdown Addicts in City Journal. And we were talking before about a Swedish study into COVID transmission in the schools in response to what Joe Biden had to say about the the predicates for reopening the schools. Uh, Something else that uh, you mentioned in your piece, John, that's important is what what have the effects been of school closures? And we've heard a lot of this, but you did some research and documented how students are being hurt academically in terms of their intellectual development, which we know to be true as well, but it's always helpful to quantify it so people understand just how serious these impacts are. You know, so I, I just don't understand why this craziness of locking down schools is uh, of closing schools it just it makes absolutely no sense it's not doing anything for covid and it's seriously hurting kids and so what you wrote about in in uh, your piece lockdown addicts about the impacts on their academic performance in places like st paul and dallas right you know that half the kids in dallas have progressed in mathematics and st paul there uh, 40% of the kids are failing their classes this year um which is double the normal rate and you're seeing this all the you know and, and there are estimates that, you know, the worldwide 24 million kids will drop out of school because of, you know, the, the school closure. Because when you do that, kids fall behind, they get frustrated, they drop out of school. And when you extrapolate this over, you know, when kids drop out of school, when they lose this much learning, they're less educated, They you know, they, and, and, and it affects them their whole life. You know, you, you know, you don't make up for this learning loss easily. I mean, some kids can if you have well-educated parents who can teach you at home. And, but a lot of kids, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's minority kids. It, it's, it's kids whose parents are not that well-educated who really are hurt the most by this. And, and, it, and it affects them their whole lives. You know, by one estimate, the kids, this school closure is going to reduce the lifetime earnings of these kids by 5%. Um, and that's a huge, you know, the, you know, it's a huge amount of money. It's, you know, $10 trillion worldwide. And, and it also, you know, because, People who make less money and who are less educated tend to die sooner. And by one estimate, you know, that it's going to reduce the life expectancy among, you know, this generation of students by more years than the pandemic, you know, it, um, has killed people. So basically, it's just this, you know, it's this long, slow-running train wreck from keeping kids at home for no reason. And it's doing nothing to, to stop the spread of COVID. Well, well, that that's it. I mean, the, you know, two two things there. One is that this has a lot longer tail than is being widely discussed in terms of uh, extended impact. So there's a discussion of one-off cases that uh, uh, with people who were infected with COVID and they have lingering health effects, and those cases are, are real. I, I have you know, friend of a friend who has said like sort of six-month lingering effects from being infected with COVID. Um, they're not statistically significant in the overall caseload, but they're still real. And uh, sort of the same thing we're trying to get a handle on here as this conversation has persisted from the beginning, although it's 
been difficult to get it to break through. We are we have always been talking about lives versus lives, both in terms of life and death as well as in terms of quality of life. And we're talking about that here, too, with kids and socialization, with their academic achievement and the impacts of social isolation and the lack of academic achievement that, you know, are years in terms of uh, in terms of the lingering effect. Right. But that doesn't show up in the case count. And that's all that matters to you know the media right now and to politicians is the covid case count. And I mean, yeah, if you say that, you know, it's unfortunate that there are some, you know, some people, a small number have these lingering effects from COVID. But, you know, I mean, it, um, this happens with all kinds of diseases. And to think that COVID is this one special disease that justifies this, you know, this social devastation to deal with it just makes no sense. The, the um, I mean, even, um, you know, nine out of 10 people who died this year did not test positive for COVID. You know, they died of something else. You know, people mm-hmm. die, people have diseases for all kinds of things. And, and you can't just basically isolate this one thing and destroy society, uh, you know, just to prevent a few cases of this. And, you know, and especially with the schools, it just does so little to even prevent cases of COVID. You know, as I said, in Sweden, the teachers who kept teaching in the classroom and the parents whose kids went there, they were not treated or hospitalized for COVID any more than than the kids who who stayed home and their parents. So yeah, and, that, and, and that for the kids and, and that, and, you know, and, and those are the kind of studies that uh, get very little attention because they run counter to where the zeitgeist is, which is sort of trying to reimagine humanity, reimagine how man actually operates. And it's it's interesting. Uh, Dr. No, Vivek, I, did, I just, just I want to reference this. Dr. Vivek Murthy who's a former U.S. Surgeon General, and he's one of the co-chairs of Biden's COVID task force. Biden's COVID task force. He wrote a book called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, in which he said, among other things, humans have survived as a species, not because we have physical advantages like size, strength, or speed, but because of our ability to connect in social groups. We exchange ideas, we coordinate goals, we share information and emotions. Well, I wonder how the lockdown policies comport with what Vivek Murthy, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy says is, you know, why human beings have survived and thrived for low these many epochs. Right. Uh, it makes no sense at all. And, and you see this in the other advisors that either Biden has chosen for COVID that, you know, like, uh, you know, Zeke Emanuel, Michael Osterholm. These are people like, you know, Emanuel preached the same sort of thing that Murphy did, saying that, you know, we need a health system that looks at the common good. And he's written endlessly about you. Uh, um, he was an architect of Obamacare and was saying, you know, that we to set up these systems that we have to be rational about health care and we shouldn't. And he's been preaching for a long time. We shouldn't devote enormous amount of resources to people at the end of life. We should focus more on younger people who have more lives to live. Now, that used to be the line among public health professionals, that we're being rational, we're trying to do what's good for everyone, for society, not just for a few people. And now, though, you know, suddenly COVID became a campaign issue, and suddenly, and the typical victim of COVID is, is nearly 80 years old. Now, you know, it seems like the re- former philosophy, we shouldn't be lucky. I mean, right. you know, lockdowns are the most expensive medical treatment we've ever done. I mean, it's just trillions and trillions of dollars, but you know, for really very uh, little, if any, benefit from it. And yet they're all in favor of this now. And, and who cares uh, what happens to young people? 
as a result of this. We, you know, the only thing that matters is saving, you know, older people um, against the risk of COVID. It makes, it, you know, they've completely contradicted their previous philosophy. Yeah, right. It seems like the real victim of COVID consistently is the truth. That's the real victim. Yeah. John Tyranny, <laughs> exactly. uh, contributing editor of City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks as always for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and we were speaking with Joel Kotkin earlier in the hour uh, about uh, green energy in general, California somewhat specifically. He lives there. He knows it well. It's a bad example, so it's noteworthy. Uh, staying on California for a minute, California, like a lot of big government states, has trouble managing their big government. Not particularly good administrators of government, the big government leftists, stunningly. And that, most notably this year, perhaps, is with respect to processing unemployment insurance claims. I know that's been the case in Illinois, my home state. By mid-October in California, hundreds of thousands of claims that had been backlogged for months, some of the claimants hadn't received a single benefit payment since the beginning of the pandemic. The agency actually forced to stop accepting new claims for two weeks while they attempted to get a handle on things. And even with that, they don't expect to get caught up on the unresolved claims until January. And so take that in this context, a press conference yesterday, group of county prosecutors laying out how hundreds of millions of dollars have been paid out to California prison inmates, hundreds of millions of dollars in unemployment insurance claims to prisoners in California, including serial killers on death row who game the system. You know, they got nothing to do all day. So they got online and scammed the EDD, the California Employment Development Department. This is just perfect. And again, you know, per our conversation with Joel Kotkin, this is a government you want to have confidence in when they say, you know, thou shall drive only electric cars by 2035 and, and uh, not to mention the lockdown policies and the school closures and all that. This is just remarkable. Uh, to give you a sense of the magnitude, between March and August, 35,000 claims filed in the name of California state prison inmates. Of those 35,000, as of August, 20,000 were paid. The highest number of claims paid on behalf of a single inmate is 16 claims. While people who actually are entitled to the unemployment insurance had no claims, some of them had no claims processed for six months. The total amount paid out for the 20000 $140 million. There was money actually sent to prison, paid and sent to inmates in prison, like at the prison address. Claims were made, people, made to people using their own names and social security numbers and to people committing identity theft. For example, there was a claim paid to somebody named Poopy Britches. <laughs> that, that didn't uh, raise any red flags with anybody over at uh, the Employment Development Division there in California. Out of the 700 or so inmates on California's death row, 133 death row inmates have claims in their names and some of them file multiple claims since there are a total of 158 claims from inmates on California's death roll. One death row inmate received 20 grand. 
between March and August, the total amount paid to death row inmates of 420 grand, including, by the way, Scott Peterson. Yes, that's Scott Peterson, who was convicted of killing his wife and, and their unborn child. Again, you want government. You want to live and die by these sorts of governments. Really. You want to put your life in the hands of California state government. Are you sure? This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Parlor. Well, on the occasion of the Dow breaking the 30,000 barrier for the first time, President Trump held a brief press briefing, and I do mean brief. Thank you very much, and I just want to congratulate everybody. The stock market, Dow Jones Industrial Average, just hit 30,000, which is the highest in history. We've never broken 30,000, and that's just despite uh, everything that's taken place with the pandemic. I'm very uh, thrilled with what's happened on the vaccine front. That's been Absolutely incredible. It's, uh, nothing like that has ever happened medically, and uh, I think people are acknowledging that, and it's having a big effect. But uh, the stock market's just broken 30,000. Never been broken, that number. That's a sacred number, 30,000. Nobody thought they'd ever see it. Uh, that's the ninth time since uh, the beginning of 2020, and it's the 48th time that we've broken records in during the Trump administration, and I just want to congratulate all the people within the administration that work so hard. And most importantly, I want to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, and on a hot mic, uh, one of the reporters said that was weird as shh. It was a little strange. I mean, just first of all, we've talked about this before. This president, any president claiming credit or taking blame for where the Dow or the NASDAQ is on any given day is a bit silly. The other thing, like we all did this together. Yeah, I mean, it's a real testament to quantitative easing, isn't it? Not that I'm not complaining because, uh, you know, my investment funds benefit like anybody else in the market. But um, gosh, I, I don't know. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by a Wall Street Journal columnist and Trumponomics author, Steve Moore. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Um, what about uh, Trump's decision to come out and make sure everybody knew that uh, the reason the Dow's at 30,000 is because of him? Well, look, I disagree with you on this. I mean, it's one thing to talk about one or two days or a week or a month's increase in the Dow, but we've seen this these trends now for, you know, four years. This has been an incredibly bullish uh, market. Yeah. It's been a time, you know, when uh, I think when he came to office, we were at about 24,000. Now we're at, you know, 30,000. That's, that's an incredible long bull market expansion. Uh, and, and by the way, don't forget, it was exactly four years ago that people like Paul Krugman said that if Donald Trump is elected president, we're going to have a great depression and the stock market is going to crash. So, you know, I think Krugman thought that the Dow was going to be at 15,000, not 30,000 after four years of Trump. And, and one last thing, I, I do. Believe, I don't think there's any question in my mind that if the election were today, Donald Trump would win easily. 
I mean, we've had two incredible accomplishments. One is the continued boom of the economy. And the second is this vaccine, not one vaccine, but it now looks like there are three that are going to be available uh, by the uh, by the early next year. And incidentally, that's by far the fastest we've ever had a vaccine uh, developed. Usually it takes five or six years. Um, that's those are two stupendous accomplishments. I think what's going on right now, the big question for the stock market, of course, is what happens in those Georgia Senate races. The Repo- you all know Republicans have to win one out of the two. If they don't, then you get not only uh, Biden, but you get also uh, Pelosi running the House and you get Chucky Schumer running the Senate. So you get a murder's row with no check and balance on the tax increases, the Green New Deal, the Medicare for all, the making, you know, Washington, D.C., the 51st state, the court backing, the filibuster on. I think that one of the reasons the market has been, you know, pretty buoyant is that even though Biden is president and going to be president, likely, and even though his policies are, in my opinion, very bad on the economy, I think investors believe that a lot of those policies will never be enacted. Well, I mean, since uh, I guess we're going to go along with uh, this idea, we're all Keynesians now. We uh, believe things that are untrue, like government spending is stimulative. We right. believe right. in the Phillips curve, like Janet Yellen still yep. does. Uh, then um, we should mind us if we're going to do that, and we're going to believe that quantitative easing has nothing to do with the uh, rebound in the stock market, $7 trillion in additional debt. Then mm-hmm. oh, well, why, not right. just th- why not throw another trillion on the uh, pyre in, in the form of uh, COVID-19 relief, uh, send another 12, round of $1,200 checks out and more expand unemployment benefits and the whole thing. So, uh, look, uh, you and I and, and most rational people understand what, what the uh, pinheads in Washington don't understand, which is that government spending is a negative for the economy. It's not a positive. It's a negative for the economy because the government, uh, you know, takes a dollar from productive people and gives it gives the dollar to unproductive people. That's not a way to get more productivity. And we also know that printing money is not the solution to, you know, a crisis. You know, you can't just print. If printing money were the solution to a crisis, Mexico would be the richest country in the world. So that stuff doesn't work. And you're right, Dan, there's a, there is this kind of um, superstition, I guess I'd use the word, that somehow we can get out of our troubles by pr- printing money and by, uh, by spending. Now, that being said, I think one of the most heroic things Donald Trump has done in the last three or four months uh, has been to resist this call for another uh, you know, two, three trillion dollar spending bill. I mean, Trump basically, even to his own political peril, perhaps, said, no, Nancy Pelosi, I'm not going to give you two and a half, three trillion dollars so you can give the money to Illinois and California and New York and Connecticut and Rhode Island. We're not doing that. And we are not going to give another six hundred dollar a week benefits in unemployment to people. We have a new report coming out with uh, from Casey Mulligan at University of Chicago this week that shows we would add four million fewer working Americans if Trump had agreed to that, because if you pay people not to work, that's what they won't work. So I think Trump deserves a lot of credit for that. And, and what he has proven, Dan, is that we don't need another stimulus. The economy is doing fine without it. What if you could get Democrats to agree on uh, uh, lawsuit indemnification? Did you, did you ask, will they agree to it? No, no. What, what if you could get congressional Democrats to agree on indemnifying oh, right. businesses from lawsuits? Oh, yeah. Then, then would, you, would, you, probably, would you horse trade you know, money for that? Several more million people working. I mean, that would be the greatest stimulus of all, right? No, no, I know. But would you horse trade some of no. what they want for that? Well, it depends on what the deal is. But 
Do we need to send checks out, $1,200 checks out to people? No. Uh, I, do we need uh, un increased unemployment insurance? No. Do we want to boost a bailout? No. Do we want to give, uh, what, $150 billion to the schools that aren't open? No. I mean, tell me what you like about that package, Dan. Um, I don't I don't like anything about that package. I'm just asking you what you <laughs> think mean, is what you think would be a deal to be made if you could indemnify businesses to oh, encourage well, encourage them to to open and and be unafraid of opening. So my view on this has been very consistent from the start. The only stimulus that really matters is allowing businesses to open up and allowing workers to go back on the job. There's no amount of checks the government can write to people that can um, offset the negative impact of putting businesses into bankruptcy. And, you know, I have two good friends here in my local area, in D.C. area, who own restaurants. And, you know, Dan and Amy, they put their whole life savings in those restaurants. I mean, they put everything they had into it. They spent five to ten years building up the restaurants. It's, it's not an easy business. I know the politicians sound like geniuses about business. They don't know anything about business. And both of them are very teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Washington, D.C. is shut down again. Maryland is shutting down again. And you just you can't do this to your businesses. <laughs> it's men and women who who put everything they got into it. And, and now they're going to get smacked right on the nose again. And it's happening in Chicago as well. Right. Your restaurants are shutting down. You know what they did here? I don't know if they did it in Chicago. They're saying tonight, by the way, uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is one of the biggest restaurant nights of the year. Right. And a lot in a lot of states now, they're saying that no restaurants on, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So, Steve, on the topic of the Georgia Senate runoffs, uh, assuming that at least one of those races comes in and Republicans retain control of the Senate. What is the policy you most worry about Joe Biden being able to get through a Republican controlled Senate? In other words, what uh, from his Bernie Sanders endorsed policy agenda, do you think he could actually generate uh, enough Republican support to move uh, through the House, through the Senate to his desk? Uh, I don't think there's almost any likelihood of a taxing. You mean you're, you mean if he has a Republican Senate? Right. Oh, I don't think that there would be a tax increase. I just don't think Republicans would go along with that. Uh, but I do think Republicans are likely to go along with big spending initiatives because Republicans are big spenders now, too, Dan. I hate to disillusion you. Yeah. <laughs> they yes. like spending money as much as Republican Democrats do. So I, I worry about a budget blowout uh, under a Biden uh, you know, presidency. And the other thing I'm really worried about is this: what is with this weird weird obsession the left has with climate change. I mean, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. We still have, you know, 10 million Americans we've got to get jobs for. We've got, you know, rioting in the streets of a lot of our cities. We've got businesses that are failing. And all they want to talk about is climate change. He is Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, economist, and author of Trumponomics. Steve, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm going to have 11 people over. Please don't tell my governor. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, I'm, uh, we're getting on the phone to you KK know, K Northam right after you get off. You can do magic. You can have anything that you desire. Magic. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, turning our attention to COVID. I want to explore this Florida versus Illinois comparison that uh, 
a uh, young MIT genius uh, rose uh, uh, rose as an issue on Twitter. But first, Heather McDonald, very good column in the uh, Spectator about uh, safetyism, the safetyism as the new totalitarianism, safetyism and identitarianism, sort of the two prongs of the new totalitarianism. They work uh, nicely to complement one another. Heather McDonald writes, today we are strangling American society in order to avoid a risk of a death so infinitesimal, roughly one one-thousandth of a percent. So infinitesimal, roughly one one-thousandth of a percent for the majority of Americans, that it would not have registered in any possible cost-benefit analysis governing both notable American endeavors and quotidian activities over the last four centuries. Our current Thanksgiving Day mantras, stay within your pod, stay within your bubble, Stay within your household. Those are actual words of a University of California, San Fran epidemiologist. Don't travel. Don't share food. Don't touch your family members or friends. Speak only in hushed tones. These mantras make a mockery of the spirit that creates a country and sustains human life. The present moment is less like the first Thanksgiving celebration and more like the Salem witch frenzy of 1692. To be sure, the coronavirus is real. Witches were not. The virus has cost thousands of lives. Witches did not. But the fear that has gripped much of the population over the last year, whipped up by sundry experts and authorities, is as disconnected from reason as that emblematic burst of hysteria in colonial Massachusetts and other such panics throughout medieval and early modern Europe. The shared features of all such contagious fears, uh, contagious fear events include the following. The belief in ubiquitous threat, self-explanatory, and uh, the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the threat is ubiquitous and everybody faces the same threat profile. Scapegoats and stigma. Yeah. There's scapegoats, easy. Orange man. Stigma, people who don't uh, assimilate to the COVID lockdown policies. The ritualistic gestures, straightforward. The arbitrary exercise of government. Well, boy, we've seen that in uh, bold colors not pale pastels this thanksgiving holiday haven't we virginia requiring children from the age of two onwards to wear mask such a practice lacking any grounding in actual science writes mcdonald likely have crippling psychological consequences well there's more than that it's a, 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 a de facto bread lines that are uh, that punctuate new mexico after governor michelle lujan grisham uh shut down her state and uh, now has people standing outside grocery stores waiting to purchase food, including the elderly and the sick in those lines. Genius. We we, we talked about these goon squads that have been activated by soft Republican governors like Larry Hogan in Maryland and uh, desired, at least in theory, by hard-left governors like Andrew Cuomo in New York. In uh, In Belgium, Van Damiland... Jean-Claude Van Damme land. Uh, Belgian police are actually going to knock on doors at Christmas to enforce coronavirus rules. Never happened. It's not like we're going to knock on doors. We're not going to knock on doors. That's what the politicians in America are saying now. Now, Belgian interior minister, police will knock on doors at Christmas if needed to enforce coronavirus measures. If necessary, if there's a lot of noise, for example, the police will knock on doors. And then what happens? Say the the interior minister in Belgium says getting into homes is not a priority. The law doesn't allow that either. But we must take very seriously the warning signs from hospitals. We have to find a balance. 
I don't want to do it, but we actually, we absolutely have the right to do it. Belgian authorities don't have to abide a constitution the way that once upon a time American politicians did, but Andrew Cuomo seems to have discounted the need to do that, hasn't he? So to this Florida-Illinois comparison, because the states have taken very different paths, the two states. So it's interesting to compare uh, particular states to countries like Sweden, but uh, state to state, especially since Florida has taken so much heat, pun intended, Sunshine State, from uh, blue state governors and mayors from the D.C. press corps. What has Illinois done? Well, Illinois had a mask mandate since May 1st. Illinois had a $5 million ad campaign to encourage mask wearing. Illinois closed indoor dining and bars at the end of October, second time. Did so in the spring as well. Illinois has a stay-at-home advisory in Chicago, additional statewide restrictions enacted last week. So what's happened? Well, I uh, direct you to uh, Yu Yang Gu, creator of COVID19projections.com, COVID19-projections.com. He's an MIT 15 grad. Last week, Illinois reported 15,415 cases in a single day, more than Florida ever did in a single day. This is despite Illinois' population being 40% fewer than Florida. And he makes this point, too. Many of you probably didn't know the dire situation in Illinois. That's because no mainstream media chose to report it. And he gives examples of the non-reporting. No national news outlets covering the situation in Illinois. Something uh, Illinois achieved last week that no other state has done with respect to COVID-19, despite being one of the most aggressive lockdown states in the country. A lot of competition, I understand, between Pritzker and Cuomo and Whitmer and Murphy and Hogan and Newsom. But uh, Illinois is right there. No other state has ever averaged 12,000 cases a day for a whole week. That's what Illinois did last week. No other state. Not even Florida, 1.7 times the population of Illinois. California, 3 times the population of Illinois. Texas, 2.3 times the population of Illinois. Also, for deaths per capita, Illinois exceeded the peak deaths in Florida twice, once in May and once again now. So how is this not news? Oh, something else. Because, oh, it's Illinois does so much testing. That's what you hear from the politicians. They, they always have a, a metric to, to shove at you to say, well, this, is the, this uh, difference here explains the difference there. It's, it's a misleading difference to the benefit of Florida. Is it? Florida has done 22% more tests than Illinois. Has fi- its uh, case fatality rate, it's, well, not case fatality rate, excuse me. It's deaths per million rate. So it's not predicated on identified cases. Deaths per million rate is 15% lower. 22% more tests, deaths per million rate is 15% lower, Florida and Illinois. We hear a lot of talk about the deaths, how deaths in Florida were preventable, writes Mr. Gu. What about the ones in Illinois? I tried to search for discussions on what went wrong in Illinois or whether we could have mitigated, prevented the situation, but I couldn't find much. Oh, so interesting. And here again, the press as the culprit. The press as the culprit in telling you only what they want you to hear because it's what they believe regardless of what the reality on the ground is, regardless of what the science and the data suggest. The same conversation we had earlier in the show about the studies uh, with Jeffrey Tucker, for example, with the studies 
that are important, that are reputable, that are peer-reviewed, that are published in respectable journals, that are ignored by the press corps. And so is this Florida versus Illinois example. But appreciate uh, what uh, this uh, MIT egghead, Yugang Gu, is doing that the politicians in Illinois are not doing. Uh, we'll be back with Alex Barazow to have uh, more of a discussion on things related to COVID with specific focus on therapies and vaccines right after this. Hey, don't come around here no more. Up. Stop. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to speak with our friend uh, Alex Barazal momentarily about uh, vaccines. But I also wanted to fold in this uh, piece that our friend Joseph Ladapo, uh, a uh, medical doctor at University of uh, California, L.A., UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Uh, This article that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, too much caution is killing COVID patients. Doctors should follow the evidence of promising therapies instead of demanding certainty. And he gives a couple of examples. This is interesting. And it comes out of a a hearing before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee just last week. The pension for certainty is visible in the frequently updated treatment guidelines for COVID-19 from NIH. Those guidelines were developed by scientists around the country, but because of a mentality that is biased toward virtually irrefutable evidence, no distinction is made for treatments with evidence for effectiveness that falls below the mark of certainty. This framework has almost certainly contributed to many avoidable deaths during the pandemic. Take the antidepressant fluvoxamine, a highly quality, a high quality, I should say, randomized clinical trial of 152 patients published in JAMA found that zero patients treated with fluvoxamine within seven days of the onset of symptoms experienced clinical deterioration compared with 8% of patients receiving a placebo. Another randomized trial of 200 healthcare workers and other adults at high risk of exposure, found that 2% of those treated with the antiparasitic uh, ivermectin developed COVID-19 compared with 10% of patients in the control group. Meta-analysis of five randomized clinical trials showed that early use of hydroxychloroquine reduced infection and hospitalization and death by 24%. All of these findings, he writes with respect to these various drugs, statistically significant, The medications have been used for decades, have safety profiles comparable to other commonly prescribed medications, and yet because there is some uncertainty, there is a reticence to use these therapies. And is this more of the poison of our worst-case scenario thinking, which is how we seem to, some seem to approach COVID, even though that is not how we approach life in general. For help and Making sense of this, we're pleased to be joined now by the aforesaid Alex Barazow, Ph.D., Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, a Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Oh, well, my pleasure. Always my pleasure to be on the show. Uh, What about uh, what Dr. Ladapo is saying about some of these therapies and uh, this uh, standard of uh, metaphysical certitude as opposed to effectiveness with limited risk? 
Well, I think that he's being a little bit unrealistic in, in what in terms of what he expects from the medical profession. Um, I mean, th- think of the average medical doctor, what, what they do on a daily basis. Now, I can speak from experience as a patient, right? So, you, you know, you go to the doctor, uh, they're busy doing paperwork usually when they're there. They're busy uh, dealing with insurance. They're busy dealing with nurses. They're de- busy dealing with, with their own patients they don't have an awful lot of time to just sit down and read the medical literature. Um, it's, it's not something of course they need to keep up on the medical literature, but they might read a little bit here or there. I don't think it's realistic to, to expect a medical doctor to sit down and Google what are all the possible cures for coronavirus and then read through a hundred papers and decide, well, I'll try all these different treatments. No, I, I, just I think, don't think that's realistic. But I think what Ladapo is talking about is not the individual doctor so much as that uh, the, the approach, the mentality of the sort of guideline setting bodies like the National Institutes for Health that are being too risk averse. For sure. I mean, it's hard. It's it's really hard to criticize. Right? It's it's easy to criticize in retrospect because when you're in the moment, doctors and scientists are inherently conservative. And I'm not speaking politically conservative. I'm speaking yeah. in their averse. behavior. Yeah. Right. They're risk averse, and the reason is is because you do something wrong, you kill somebody. Right. And it's and it's easy for people like you and me to say, well, come on, give it a shot. What do you got to lose? Well. Your license, that's one thing. Your conscience, you know, sleep, you know, right? Like there's a lot of other things that go into making decisions like this. And it's it's tough, I think, to say, well, come on, try this, try this, try this drug. You know, it hasn't been tried for this disease before, but there's this paper here that says you got, you know, a slightly better better uh, outcome with this drug. I, I think that we're I think that that, that Dr. Ladapo is being a little bit um, unfair to the biomedical community. When we come back, I want to uh, move from therapies to the vaccines in the offing, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. We'll uh, get uh, Alex Berzow's perspective on those forthcoming vaccines, we hope, uh, right after this. Oh, that ain't That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Get your chicks for free. We got to install microwave oven. Custom kitchen delivery. The more you'll know, this is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Alex Berezal, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, PhD microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. And uh, Alex, you've uh, done a compare contrast on the vaccines and the offing from Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. You know, I think there's questions about the efficacy and uh, sort of are are enough Americans and people in the West more generally persuaded that uh, vaccines once made available should be accessed, number one. And then number two, the distribution 
This this seems to be the big question, not just sort of the logistical issue, but in terms of the ethical issues surrounding, you know, what is the rank order prioritizations of distribution of the, of the vaccines. Help us make sense of how we can maximize all the vaccines that are coming online in um, the most ethical way. Oh, for sure. This is going to be a huge problem, and I don't think there's really a scientific answer to it. There's going to be a lot of politics here. The truth of the matter is, is that there's no distribution scheme that's going to be perfect when you have a limited supply of a life-saving product. So there's really no perfect solution here, and, and I don't really envy the outgoing Trump administration or the incoming Biden administration to make these decisions, and I'm not going to second-guess them because it's, it's, I don't have the sort of information that they have. All I can say is that from a scientific perspective, the smartest thing to do is probably to make sure that the frontline workers, the paramedics, the doctors, the nurses, to make sure they're all vaccinated. Because as this third wave gets worse and worse and worse, we don't want it wiping out hospital staff. And so we want to make sure that they're healthy. Then we want to make sure that the sickest among us are healthy or at least protected. So that would be the elderly, the immunocompromised, those with underlying conditions, make sure they're vaccinated and then open it up to the general public. Well, and just, just with, so with these three different uh, vaccines, is there a way to sort of synchronize the distribution? Is that something that's even contemplated? Like, so who, who gets Pfizer and who gets Moderna? I mean, who gets one at all? But then how do you, then, then well, the sort a, you know, that's right? A, that's a great question. Br- right, that's yeah, a great question. I think we're probably in uncharted territory here, right? Because not only is it a matter of who gets what vaccine, it's also who gets the good vaccine and who gets the one that's not so good, right? right. Because that's what we're really looking at. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are both 95% effective. The AstraZeneca vaccine, at best, is 90% effective. At worst, 60% effective. So who gets that one, right? <laughs> right, and then there's also, like, like, do you want something? I mean, you know, as you say, these, these are political and ethical questions, not medical ones, but it's like we can get you the AstraZeneca one faster because of the, the storage requirements of the Pfizer and Moderna ones, but it's less effective. So do you want to take the one that's a little bit less effective, or do you want to wait for the one that is more effective but it's going to you know, take longer to, to obtain? And that's exactly the sort of question that the CDC is going to have to answer and state and, fe- and, state and local governments governments are going to have to answer. I, I don't, and, and my guess is that you're probably going to have different answers in different places. I don't know what the CDC will recommend. I, I do know that it's not like 200 million doses of, of AstraZeneca's vaccine are going to appear overnight. It's right. going to come out in batches, right? It's going to come out, you know, here's the first million, here's the second million, here's the third million. And as these batches come out, they're going to be distributed probably to places that are being hit the hardest at the moment. That would be my guess. But, you know, everyone is going to be scrambling for it. We know that that uh, Andrew Cuomo, despite saying he doesn't want the vaccine, we know he's going to want the vaccine. And we know that every governor across the country is going to want the vaccine. And we also know that these companies have purchase orders from other countries. They want their vaccines. And at some point, you know, explain to Americans, if you're President Biden, I'm sorry, but we have to ship these vaccines to France because they bought them, right? I don't think that's going to work. And I think we're going to have to have probably Congress or the president are going to step in and say, I'm sorry to these companies. You've got to start, you've got to give these vaccines to Americans first. I don't care what your contract says. No, you're right. I mean, these are going to be a lot of sticky political issues and something else, too. I mean, just thinking about down the road, I, I understand this is going to take time to deploy these vaccines and distribute them and so forth. Then then what happens? So how many people need to take the vaccines or proof up of taking the vaccines and test that they're negative or they've developed antibodies or they're immune before we 
say, relax mask requirements or social distancing requirements. So what, what, you know, what's the progression of that? I don't see the mask or the social distancing things, re, you know, ending anytime soon. I, I think we will ex- we will see those maybe through the end of next year. Uh, the reason is, is that the vaccines won't even be widely distributed probably until spring or summer. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's that's the first thing. The second thing is we don't actually know how long the vaccines last, right? We know that they are 95% effective for the duration of these studies, which has only been a few months, right? But what about next year? Is, is the vaccine still going to work? We don't know. Right. We don't know the like answer the, to that. Like question. the flu shot you take every year. Exactly. Example. Exactly. What if we have to do this every year? And so we don't we don't know the answer to that question. And uh, and so and what about this? It's not once you start having people uh, vaccinated, then how does that impact uh, things like travel? Are you going to have to have uh, some sort of uh, health profile, like sort of, sort of like common pass where that that has your vaccination papers to travel internationally in particular? You know, I don't know where this is headed. I, I You know, right now, if you land in a foreign country that is essentially closed down, uh, you, they will require you to do a test on the spot. Right. They'll right. say, well, you know, swab your nose and we'll let you know in a day or so whether or not you're positive or negative. In the meantime, you're quarantined. Right. Uh, I, I think for the foreseeable future, that's that's how travel is going to work. Uh, in the future, will we have immunity passports? I don't think it's un- – I mean, is it a good idea or a bad idea? I can't answer that. Is it realistic? Yeah, I do think it's a realistic option. Let's end with something fun that uh, has nothing to do with science, but that does have to do with uh, quality of life, and that is who replaces the great Alex Trebek as Jeopardy host. And you have a I, – I, you know what? I, it's, it's, it was so <laughs> o- it's so obvious. I mean, I, I couldn't be a bigger Frasier fan, but I, I didn't see it. That Kelsey Grammer. Why, why Kelsey Grammer? <laughs> You know, to, to be a good game show host, and particularly a Jeopardy host, right, you've got to have this air of intelligence and intellectual superiority, right? You've got to be able to pronounce French words and things like this. Exactly, right? And Alex Trebek, Alex Trebek pulled it off, right? Was he a brilliant guy? I don't know, but he sure seemed like one, right? He had all the answers. And so, you know, so who else is like that in Hollywood? Well, and I thought, well, Frazier. He's the guy Perfect. that would, would have the same. And so I, I'm all I'm all in, I want I want Dr. Frazier Crane as the next it, Jeopardy host. Uh, I'll tell you what, if I if I didn't care about the franchise so much, Jeopardy, I would say Andrew Cuomo because he's an international Emmy Award winner. <laughs> But, uh, no, I, th- I think Kelsey Grammer is the right call. Very good. Alex Barazow, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, likewise. My pleasure. Take Show.com. Welcome back, and as we close the show on this Thanksgiving Eve, uh, a little bit of history as we celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact. Mayflower Compact, that is. Easy for me to say. I think I'm already thinking about turkey. Um, interesting about uh, those uh, pilgrims who landed on Plymouth Rock. In the diary of the colony's first governor, that would be William Bradford, of course, land was held in common. 
crops were brought to a common storehouse, distributed equally. For two years, every person had to work for everybody else, not for themselves as individuals or families. So how'd that work out? Do we have any lessons that uh, seem to be unlearned among some 400 years later? Well, the common property approach killed off about half the settlers. Bradford recorded in his diary, everybody was happy to claim their equal share of production, but production only shrank. Oh, the free rider problem. Lack of private property. Slackers showed up late for work in the fields, had the, and the hard workers resented it. It's called uh, human nature. Yeah. The, 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 the communal failure was transformed into private property capitalist success, something that's happened so often historically. It's uh, axiomatic at this point, although, again, not to the left in America here 400 years later in 2020. People over profits and other such sloganeering in lieu of Econ 101. There was a, a op-ed that uh, Mark Perry always uh, reposts around this time of year from uh, Jeff Jacoby in the Boston, the Boston Globe about, uh, I think it was 2003. And it was sort of a eye pencil for you, Leonard Reed Foundation for Economic Education fans. Uh, eye pencil, so the idea of the, the, the wonder of the market. Uh, and uh, Jacoby's piece, of course, applies the eye pencil concept to Thanksgiving dinner. Isn't there something wondrous, Jacoby wrote in 2003, almost ex- inexplicable in the way your Thanksgiving weekend is made possible by the skill and labor of vast numbers of total strangers? To bring that turkey to the dining room table required the efforts of thousands of people, the poultry farmers who raised the birds, but also the feed distributors who supplied their nourishment and the truckers who brought it to the farm, not to mention the architect who designed the hatchery, the workmen who built it, the technicians who keep it running. The bird had to be slaughtered and defeathered and inspected and transported and unloaded and wrapped and priced and displayed. The people who accomplished those tasks were supported in turn by armies of other people accomplishing other tasks, from refining the gasoline that fueled the trucks to manufacturing the plastic in which the meat was packaged. The activities of countless far-flung men and women over the course of many months had to be intricately choreographed and precisely timed so that when you showed up to buy a fresh Thanksgiving turkey, there would be one, or more likely a few dozen, waiting. The level of coordination that was required to pull it off is mind-boggling, but what is even more mind-boggling? No one coordinated it. No one coordinated it. No turkey czar sat in a command post somewhere consulting a master plan and issuing orders. No one forced people to cooperate for your benefit. And yet they did cooperate. When you arrived at the supermarket, your turkey was there. You didn't have to do anything but show up to buy it. If that isn't a miracle, what should we call it? Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Thank you for joining us on this Thanksgiving Eve edition of the Dan Prof Show. We'll be back on Monday. This is the Dan Proft Show.